Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Oddity Pottity Podcast. I'm your host, Tana, and today I want to tell you about one of the most infamous streets in the city of New Orleans. No, I'm not talking about Bourbon Street. I don't live too far from NOLA, and I've spent more time there than what's probably been good for me. And like any big city, there are areas that tourists need to steer clear of. And I can tell you from experience that Ursuline's Avenue is not a street that I would walk down alone, and not because of the threat of random crime. You see, for centuries, the residents of Ursuline's Avenue have fallen victim to horrific murders, which all share bizarre threads that seem to originate with its namesake, the Ursuline Convent. This will be a two-part episode, with part one covering some of the most famous murders that occurred on Ursuline's Avenue, and part two exploring the connection to the Ursuline's Convent. Are y'all ready? Without further ado, here's part one of The Demons of Ursuline's Avenue. The name Bourbon Street is synonymous with New Orleans. Just saying it out loud conjures up images of rowdy crowds and jazz music and free-flowing booze and, of course, the Lucky Dog Cart, right? But there's another street in the French Quarter that's just as infamous, to the locals at least, and not exactly for being a good time. In comparison to the other streets in the Quarter, Ursuline's is a quiet and it's almost eerily still. It runs parallel to Esplanade and intersects at Bourbon at the 700 block. Now, it's this 600 to 700 block that I want to tell you about today. This is a two-parter. and I'm going to talk about how the 500 block of Ursulines ties into this on the next episode. But for now, we're staying at the 600 and 700 block. With some of this information I'm about to share, it comes from a lot of different articles on the internet. I'm going to link those in the show notes. Criminal Discourse Podcast actually does a deep dive into the, it's called the NOLA Murder Block. And then American Hauntings Podcast does a deep dive into the Axeman murders. So check those out if you want to hear about more of those crimes in depth. But I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version It's no secret that the New Orleans French Quarter has a violent, bloodied past. I mean, it was built by criminals. And that's part of the charm now. I mean, that's why we like it. It's decadent. But Ursuline's Ave has seen more than its fair share of murder and mayhem, even by quarter standards, I think. So the first stop on this tour is at 725 Ursuline's. And this is a story that really puts Sweeney Todd to shame. It happened in the mid-1800s. I couldn't get an exact date on it. No matter how many news articles I read on it, there's not an exact date. But it's all, say, the mid-1800s, and it involves a German butcher named Hans Mueller. Hans Mueller and his wife opened a sausage factory on the first floor of the house on Ursulines, and they made their home on the second floor. A lot of people do that in the quarter. There's going to be a store on the first floor and then apartments on the second floor and, and even the third, if there's a third. The community took really quickly to the Mueller's. They liked them a lot. They were very popular, and their butcher shop became a huge success. And it was so successful that Mrs. Mueller could not keep up with her household chores. So Hans very helpfully hired her an assistant to keep her caught up with her household chores. But Hans happened to hire a young woman who was very young and very beautiful and soon began performing more of the wifely duties than Mrs. Mueller was comfortable with. As soon as Mrs. Mueller learned of her husband's affair with the help, she confronted him and demanded that he fire the girl. But instead of firing the girl, Hans 
strangled Mrs. Mueller. And then he threw her body. This makes me sick, you guys. He threw her body into one of the industrial-sized sausage grinders and ground her up and packaged her remains neatly into sausage casings, which he then sold to his neighbors. Dude, what is wrong with this guy? God. I mean, it's like no one ever hears of divorce in these cases. The neighbors quickly noticed the absence of Mrs. Mueller because she was a staple in the shop, and then suddenly she was not there. Hans couldn't explain away her absence, and they also noted at the same time, Hans began behaving very strangely. He began wandering around at night and wringing his hands and talking to some unseen entity. And then when a customer bit into a Mueller sausage and spat out a twisted gold ring that Mrs. Mueller had once worn on her finger, the jig was up. They put two and two together. They called the authorities. And when police arrived to investigate, they found Hans hiding behind the sausage grinder that he had put his wife in. And he wasn't hiding from the police. Rather, he claimed he was hiding from the evil spirit who had told him to kill his wife and pack her up into sausage casings. Man, that really killed my appetite for a lucky dog. I mean, it made me sick even like researching this. So that's story number one at 725 Ursulines. The next story took place decades later, and it originates at 623 Ursulines, which is about a block away from the Mueller's Butcher Shop. This happened in 1918. In 1918, the city of New Orleans was gripped, again, by a string of violent murders that was committed by a serial killer who became known as the Axeman. And you can probably guess how he got the nickname, but let me just spell it out for you. He chopped people up with axes. There were more than a dozen victims overall, and they were all attacked while they slept, and usually with their own axes. So, you know, people kept axes in their homes at that time to chop up wood or do chores around the house. So he would either bring his own axe, but in a lot of cases, he just chopped people up with their own axes. And most of them died, but a few did survive. And many of the victims were Italian-Americans. So some believe that these crimes were mafia-related or a grudge that kind of got out of hand. There were even a few superstitious types that thought that whatever evil spirit had caused Hans Mueller to kill his wife had returned. And this idea was perpetuated in 1919 after a year of these murders going on and the whole city was terrified. The Axeman wrote a letter to the the local uh, newspaper, the Times-Picayune, and it was addressed from hell. And here's what the letter said, quote, from hell, March 13th, 1919, esteemed mortal. They have never caught me and they never will. They have never seen me for I am invisible. Even as the ether that surrounds your earth, I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axeman. Then he goes on to say that he's like bros with the angel of death and he likes to have long walks on the beach and pina coladas. Oh, and jazz music. He loves jazz music. In fact, at the end of the letter, he promises that if the people of NOLA play jazz music at 1215 on the following Tuesday night, they'll be spared the axe. And if not, this is what's going to happen in his words. I quote, one thing is certain, and that is that some of your people who do not jazz it on Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. Signed, the axe man. End quote. So jazz it, people. Jazz it for your life. I don't know why that, that made me laugh. Jazz it. Anyway, you better believe that every home and bar in the French Quarter had their windows open and jazz music blaring out that night, and no one was killed. And the Axeman just disappeared from the city as quickly as he'd come. But what does the story have to do with Ursuline's Ave? Because it happened all over the quarter, right? Well, 
There was never enough hard evidence to convict him of murder, but it was strongly believed that the killer was a handyman who went by the name of Leon Joseph Monfrey or Frank Mumfrey. He had he had several aliases, but his last name was always Monfrey or Monfrey or Mumfrey. He lived in a rented room at 623 Earth's which is now a hotel. Specifically, it's a hotel called The Haunted Hotel. And the Haunted Hotel's website claims that it's been the site of almost a dozen murders in the 200 years that it's been standing. And I, I looked and looked and looked to see like what specific murders they're claiming, and it's the Axeman murders. So, in addition to being in the Axeman's crib, the website says that the building was also once part of the Ursuline Convent property. You guys, which is more terrifying to me than the Axeman himself, because when you listen to part two of this episode, you'll understand why I say that. There's definitely some bad juju in that joint, and the Haunted Hotel is probably a great name for that place. Anyway, again, the Axeman saga is long and detailed. There's a lot to it. This is the Cliff Notes version, but on the American Hauntings podcast, the hosts Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, they do a really deep dive into that. So if you want the gory, and I do mean gory details, go check out their podcasts. But for the purposes of this story, I want you to note two things. The murderer lived on Ursulines, and he claimed to be or to be influenced by an evil spirit. So next up, eight years later, just a few doors down for the Mueller's again, where Mrs. Mueller met her fate is the site where another unhappy marriage ended in murder in 1927. It's 715 Ursulines. And this, this place was owned by a businessman named Joseph Caruso. On the first floor, he ran a small grocery again, and on the second floor, he rented to the Moiti family. Actually, it was home to two Moiti families. Sisters Teresa and Leonita had married brothers Henry and Joseph Moiti, and the two couples lived on the second floor with their combined five children. On one chilly fall afternoon of October 27th, housekeeper Nettie Compass let herself into the building to do some cleaning. And as soon as she reached that second floor, she started screaming her head off because she saw blood spray spattered everywhere, all across the floors and the walls. There was even a pile of severed fingers laying on a blood-soaked mattress. And there, sitting next to the bed, was a travel trunk. There was blackened blood oozing from its stitches. And when authorities arrived, they found the severed arms, legs, head, and torso of a young woman inside. And they did a sweep of the apartment, and they found a second identical trunk in another bedroom. And this one also contained the dismembered corpse of a second woman. And on top of this trunk lay a bloodied sugarcane knife, which, if you guys don't know what that is, it's a long-handled blade, and it looks really, it looks a lot like a machete. I mean, for all intents and purposes, it's a machete. The two victims were quickly identified by their heads as 25-year-old Teresa Moiti and her 28-year-old sister, Leonita. And since there was no sign of the rest of the women's families, the husbands were immediately suspects. While police tried to locate the Moiti brothers, uh, coroner George Rowling examined the victims and found that the women had been actually bludgeoned to death with some kind of club prior to being dismembered. So they were beaten to death and then cut up with the sugarcane blade. Teresa had been beaten with such force that a gold wedding band had been found lodged deep into a wound in her back. Interesting another golden band. Joseph actually turned himself in as soon as he heard about his wife's murder. He seemed to have an ironclad alibi as well. He told police that a few weeks earlier, he'd come home to find Leonita with another man. So Leonita made no secret that she'd been miserable in her marriage. 
to Joseph, and she'd even written a book about how much marriage sucks, <laughs> and she compared it to a prison sentence. So catching her with a lover was not exactly shocking to Joseph, but what was kind of weird was instead of begging her husband for forgiveness, Leonita kicked him out. She told him to hit the road, and so he had obediently packed up his stuff, and he took their children, and they went to stay with his parents in New Iberia, which was about two hours away. And that's where he was at the time of the murder, so he had an alibi. However, Henry, who was Teresa's husband and Joseph's brother, was another story. Joseph told police that he was certain that his brother Henry was responsible for these disgusting, horrible murders. So police suspected that Henry might try to escape because no one could find him. They thought he might try to escape the city on a ship because at that time, that was probably the quickest way to get far, far away, at least out of the country. So they alerted all ports to be on the lookout. And sure enough, just two days after the murders, Henry Moiti was arrested trying to escape New Orleans on a ship. He tried to board under a false name, but he had a very distinct tattoo, and the police gave very clear descriptions of this tattoo. And the one that got him caught was this tattoo of a nude woman on his arm, and that gave him away. Why had Henry done it? Because he did confess. Well, it turns out it wasn't only Joseph and Leonita who had this rocky relationship. Henry and Teresa were in trouble, too, and it was mainly because, you know, the stuff that that happens in a lot of marriages— Joseph and Henry were in and out of work, and interestingly, this work sometimes included employment as a butcher. Yes, both Moody brothers had worked as butchers, but it wasn't enough that Leonita and Teresa had to work odd jobs to make ends meet, so they're always constantly financially struggling, which is a huge—it's actually the number one marital stressor and the number one reason for divorce— but this hardscrabble life was not what either sister had envisioned their married lives to be like. So financial strain and this disillusionment combined with drinking, a lot of drinking and a lot of infidelity made for a very turbulent home life. And the breaking point, Henry said in his confession, had come after Leonita had thrown Joseph out. And according to him, Leonita's move had emboldened Teresa to take a new lover of their own who happened to be their landlord, Joseph Caruso. Awkward. Henry had heard rumors that his wife had been fooling around with Caruso in town and was planning to leave Henry for him. So this really infuriated Henry, and he decided to punish both his wife and his sister-in-law for influencing her. Henry sent the remaining children to stay with relatives while he butchered their mother and their aunt and packed them in the trunks. He later told the police that, quote, If I ever get my hands on that Joe Caruso, I'll chop him up into little pieces. Not big pieces like my wife, but little pieces, he told police. I'll make him look like something that's been run through a sausage mill. Ursuline Avenue, butchers, sausage. Is there a link? Okay, I'll show myself out. Henry was found guilty, and he was sentenced to life in prison for the horrific murders of Teresa and Leonid Moiti. And because life in prison never actually means life in prison, he was released after serving 20 years. He managed to make it a whole eight years before trying to murder another woman. And in 1956, he was sentenced to five years at Folsom Prison for shooting his girlfriend, Alberta Orange, in the chest. Alberta survived, but Henry did die in prison a year later. During his years in prison, Henry frequently spoke of a spirit who told him how to kill his wife and sister-in-law and to pack their bodies into the trunks that they were found in. You guys, 
You starting to see what I'm throwing out there? If that didn't convince you, here's the last story I'm going to share in part one of the Ursulines episode. And this one happened in 2002. Polly Pastore met John Henry Morgan when they worked together at the Quartermaster Deli, which is on the corner of Bourbon and Ursulines. It's not exactly a butcher shop, but I'm pretty sure there were sausages on the premises and definitely deli meat. They definitely involved cutting deli meat. The two were engaged in a passionate but very volatile relationship. Polly was known to be a free spirit, so when she went missing, not many questioned John Henry's explanation that she left him in in New Orleans to go to another city and start a new life. But in reality, John had butchered Polly in the apartment that they shared at 735 Ursulines, which is two doors down from the Mueller's butcher shop. After killing Polly... John dismembered her body and stuffed it into a trunk. You guys, he butchered her two doors down from Mueller's butcher shop, and they both worked in a butcher shop, and he stuffed their body into a trunk, just like Teresa and Leonita Moiti. He dismembered her body, stuffed it into a trunk, and then he brought that trunk with him when he moved with his new girlfriend to an apartment in Elysian Fields. Talk about bringing baggage with you into a relationship. This was finally discovered a few years later when Hurricane Katrina hit in 2005. John left that trunk behind, probably hoping that it would be destroyed in the flood, but it was not, and it was eventually discovered when his landlady returned to the property to clean up after the hurricane. John Henry Morgan was convicted of the murder of Polly Pastore in 2009, and witnesses claim that over the years in his drunken state and also in prison, he told them that a spirit that lived in their apartment at 735 Ursulines had told him to dismember Polly's body and store it in a trunk. This concludes part one of the Ursulines Avenue saga. And if you haven't been keeping count, we have three murderous men with surnames that start with the letter M. Hans Mueller, Henry Moidy, James Henry Morgan, four if you count Frank Mumphrey, a.k.a. Leon Joseph Monfrey, and believed that he is the Axeman. All four lived within a block of each other on Arsalan's Avenue, and all committed murders by way of cutting up their victims, like butchers that they were, and all professed that an evil spirit was involved. And in the case of Frank Monfrey, or Joseph Monfrey, he was the evil spirit, and the Axeman was the actual evil spirit. And we also have three victims whose bodies were hidden in trunks. And if you want to count Hans Mueller's wife, she was uh, hidden in a sausage casing. So they're all packed up. In part two, we will discuss the Ursuline Convent, which sits at the 500 block of Ursuline's Ave. And it's eerie history that makes some wonder if there's an ancient evil trapped there and if it might be leaking its dark influence into those nearest to it. Hey, you. Yeah, you. Thanks for listening. Your support means so much. It's everything. If you haven't already, please go follow us on Instagram at Oddity Podity Podcast. And if you want to be the most helpfulest, please go leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And if there's something weird or creepy or strange that you'd like me to investigate and report back to you on, drop me an email at oddityPodity at gmail.com. That's O-D-D-I-T-Y. P-O-D-D-I-T-Y at gmail.com. See y'all next time.